We're going to begin reading in verse number 1. We'll read down to verse number 4 of the 27th Psalm. And it begins this way. It says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. Verse 4, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Let's read verse 4 once more and then we'll pray. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Father, we love You tonight. We thank You for Your Word and we pray that You bless the preaching of it for Your glory, Lord, for Your honor. Speak to hearts. And I pray that You'd have liberty this evening to do in us that which would bring You glory. Lord, we love You and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I want us to notice what the psalmist says in verse number 4 of this psalm. He says, One thing have I desired of the Lord. You know, I think one of the things that plagues this day that we live in, and I can't confine it just to a particular generation because it seems like everybody is afflicted by this same thing, is the idea of distractions. Uh, we live in a busy time. There's no question about it. We live in a time where we're more plugged up socially than we've ever been in human history. Uh, we are constantly aware of things that are taking place around us, whether it comes to social media or it comes to the news or uh, whatever it might be. And we live in a day of distractions. Now, I want you to hear me well. The devil will always try to derail our lives through one of two things. He will either try to do so through discouragement or through distractions. Uh, you'll find the devil sees the value in not necessarily causing us to turn our back on the Lord or to walk away. I think for a lot of people, uh, we understand that that would not even be within the realm of possibility. Those that know the Lord, uh, the Lord is dear and precious to them. The devil knows that he's not going to get them, most likely, to just turn around and walk away from God. But if he can get them walking in 9,000 directions at one time, then they're never going to make any progress in their walk with the Lord. And the psalmist, I think, portrays to us the value that it is to become focused on a singular principle and truth and to pursue after it with all of our heart. I want you to notice a few things uh, just by way of introduction. And, and I want to define for you, first of all, what this one thing is. I mean, I think it's important if the psalmist says, One thing have I desired of the Lord. Then uh, if we're going to preach from this passage, if we're going to glean something, we need to know what that one thing is. And I think he defines it in three portions, and that's what we're going to preach on here in a moment. But let me just give you a short, simple definition of what I think this one thing is the psalmist is interested in. I would describe it this way. One thing have I desired, and it is this, to find, know, and experience God in a personal way. I think what he's saying is, despite everything else in my life, if I can just get in the presence of God and know God in a greater way, if I only do that one thing with my life, then I'll be satisfied. One of the things I think that is tragic is we live in a day where the vast majority of people that profess to be Christians are, are they're what we might call cultural Christians. They've selected Christian as the category 
for, for how they define themselves. But the reality is that they define themselves as Christians, but most of the time Christianity does not define them. They're cultural Christians. I mean, if you were if you were filling out a government form and it asked what your religion was, they'd check Christian. But it really doesn't go much further than that. And the vast majority of people that would say, well, sure, I'm a Christian. I, I was raised in church. My granddaddy was Baptist. My grandmama was Methodist. I, you know, sure, I, I'm a Christian when I when I go to church. It's where I go. I don't go to a synagogue or a mosque. I, I go to a church. And sure, I'm a Christian. But they don't actually know God in a personal and meaningful way. Christianity is just merely the box they select when asked where they align themselves. By the way, let me say this, and this isn't even in my message, but I I feel like saying it. We're in the midst right now of a cultural war. I don't know if you realize that. Everything that's taking place around us is a culture war. Uh, that's part of the reason. Nobody will define it as that. Instead, it's all about these little nuanced matters where maybe there's some, some ground some, some, uh, to stand on and some footing. But at the end of the day, that's what we're faced with is a culture war. And that's why it becomes embodied by any variation uh, of persons. I mean, it, it's, you know, there's people that line up on the, the Democrat side and then people that line up on the Republican side. But it's really not about Democrat and Republican. It's a culture war. Uh, there's people that line up on the liberal side or, or the conservative side, but it's really not about it. It's a culture war is what it is. And it may uh, become uh, emblematic through various figures, whether it be a political figure or a, or a policy or a religious figure, but at the end of the day, it's a culture war is what it is. And oftentimes, let me tell you this, it's dangerous to get in and fight this culture war if all you're fighting it for is culture. Amen? We as Christians, as Bible believers, we need to be defined not by whatever uh, opposing cultural ideals are prevalent in the day that we live in. We need to be defined by the truth of the Word of God and the reality of who we are in Christ. That needs to be what defines who and what we are. If you're not careful, you'll wind up on the wrong side of things. And when I say on the wrong side, I don't just mean on the wrong side of popular opinion or on the wrong side of history. I mean you'll wind up on the wrong side of the Word of God trying to defend something that's unscriptural. Because, well, culture. Amen? So we, we need to be careful. And, uh, you know, I think that one of the ways to guard against this, that really wasn't part of my message, but watch here, I'm going to tie it into it, is uh, by allowing ourselves to be defined by a meaningful personal relationship with God. We need to know God. And, we, and He needs to know us. Amen? It needs to be a relationship. And I think that's really what the psalmist is, is driving at. And I'd like to notice a few things about what prioritizing your life does. Notice first off the priority of this thing. He says beyond everything else, there is one thing that is important to him. I'd suggest to you this evening that that's true for all of our lives, though it may be different things. For all of us, there is one thing that defines our pursuit and our desire and our passion in life. And most of the time, you can find out what that is by examining how a man spends his time. Time is a valuable commodity. <laughs> There's no one in the world making more time. Amen. Whatever we have, that's what we have. It doesn't matter how much you'll pay. You can't add years to your life. And so how we invest our time is oftentimes a good indicator of what our passion and priority is. We all have one thing. I wonder what it'd be if we were to look at our lives in an honest and plain-faced way. He notes that there is one thing that is important to him. Notice the pursuit of this thing. He says, this that will I seek after is how he says it. That will I seek after. Whatever that one thing is will drive the way that we behave and the way that we invest and spend our time. If, we're re- if something's really a priority in our life, we're going to allow our time to be invested in that thing. 
say, preacher, what are you driving at? Well, let me say it this way. Don't tell me that God's a priority if you don't ever spend any time with Him. Don't tell me that church is a priority if you're never there. Don't tell me that your Bible's a priority if you don't ever read it. And don't tell me that prayer's a priority if you never find yourself praying. You see, the psalmist, I think, is being honest here. He's saying there's one thing that occupies the desires of my heart, and I'm going to seek after it. I will pursue after it. And so you could both look at the declared thing and learn something about his pursuit, or you could look at the pursuit and learn something about the declared thing. But these things will always coincide with each other. And that's true. You look at a man's life. If he spends all of his time just trying to make money, and by the way, I'm not against making money. Amen? I, I hope you make money. I hope I make money. I hope everybody makes I'm not against money. And by the way, one of the most misquoted Scriptures in the Word of God, people say money is the root of all evil. They need to get. They either need to read their, their Bible or get a Bible if they if whatever they have don't say it right. Uh, the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Nothing wrong with having money. The Lord had money. Amen. The Lord paid his taxes. Amen. Nothing wrong with having money. But what he is pointing to is this: that when that becomes the object of our desire, it always breeds evil and wickedness. And by the way, you can look across this world. You begin to think carefully about it, and every wicked deed done in this world can be traced back to a dollar bill somewhere. Maybe not directly, but somewhere it can be traced back to that place. You see, whatever we love, that's going to define the way that we live and the way that we behave. But then I'd like for you to notice the peace that this thing is going to bring to him. Now, for this, we have to notice the context of what the psalmist is saying. It has not been a pleasant time in the psalmist's life. And we know that because of verses 2 and 3. He says, When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Verse 3, he says, Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. Evidently, this was a tumultuous time in the psalmist's life. Things are not going well. But he recognizes that if he can just focus his energy upon this one thing, if he can just push everything else out and get focused and centered upon this one pursuit, this one desire, then everything else is going to fall in line. Now, this is one of the most important truths I can ever hope to share with you. And Christ said it this way in Matthew chapter 5 when He said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. You know what the Christian life is. You know what navigating life successfully is. It's placing God at the forefront and then allowing God to place everything else in its proper place. If you're not pursuing after a relationship with God, and when I say that, I don't mean trying to work to please Him or trying in some kind of uh, Eastern mysticism and ethereal way to meditate your way into a relationship with God. What I'm saying is this. If you're saved and know Christ, now if you're here tonight and you've never been saved, you've never been born again, then just as somebody that never had a physical birth date couldn't be defined as alive, right? Everybody has a day they were born on. If you have no spiritual birth date, no day when you accepted Christ as your Savior, then you're spiritually dead. You need to be born again and saved by God's grace. And once you've done that, then the passion and desire of your life ought to be to know God in a greater way. If you'll put that in its proper place, everything else will take care of itself. Now, sometimes God will call on you to take care of some of those things. That's not to say we get to just mentally and emotionally check out of life because we've reached some kind of pseudo-nirvana stage where we're just sitting around praying and meditating all the time and we don't ever have to take the garbage out or mow the lawn. But what it is to say is this. Most of the things we spend time worrying about in life are things we really can't change anyway. And so if you'll place your faith in God and make your relationship with God the centerpiece and focal point of your energy and efforts, 
then God will see to everything else that's around you. By the same token, if you let your relationship with God slide while you're running around trying to solve the world's problems, it'll bring only heartache and discouragement and despair to you. Because, number one, they're not your problems to solve in the first place. Number two, you don't have the ability to solve them. There's a lot of things. Most of us are burdened right now because there's people we love that ain't living right. Well, guess what? You can't make them live right. And you can encourage them to live right, and you can pray for them to live right, but you can't make them live right. They have to make that choice, and of course you should pray for them. But here's the thing. There's only one person in this world that you can make live right, and that's you. That's you. So focus your energy on that. I think I would define this pursuit in three different ways, three things that that go into this process. Look what it says in verse number four. He says, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after. And first off, he says this, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Let me say, number one, that we, if we're going to know God in a greater way, we need to remain in God's presence. Now, there's two truths, I believe, here. One is a truth concerning being in the house of God. And uh, I think David's saying this, if I want to know God, I know where to find Him. Amen? God has chosen the institution of the local church as being the means of Him manifesting and making known His presence in this lost and dying world. I'm a believer in the local church. Amen? I believe that God can make Himself known any way that He chooses. And He's chosen the local church. That's how He's chosen to make Himself known and experienced throughout this world. Now, that's not to say God can't uh, make Himself present and known in, in other ways and other places. I'm sure God does that. When I got saved, I was alone in my bedroom. Amen? Uh, I believe God has the ability to do that. God has the ability to do anything that He wants to do. And He has chosen instead for the majority of time, in the majority of instances, to speak to you and I through the preached Word of God in the house of God in the local church. Uh, you hear people say all the time, you know, well, I've got my own relationship with God, and I don't go down to the churches where hypocrites are, and so on and so forth. You've heard that, I've heard that, and they'll say, I, I remember I had a boss one time said, I, you know, I just go to the golf course and I worship God there. I've been to the golf course. You ever been to a golf course? I'll tell you this, I, I, I heard a lot of oaths being taken at the golf course, but one, none of them worshiping. Amen? Uh, no, that's silly. I, I know that's not where he worships God, and he knows that's not where he worships God. Amen? Now, that's not to say you can't meditate on the Lord in those places. It's a peaceful thing. Back when I used to play golf, some, uh, and I guess I still do, uh, but it's been like two years. So I don't, I don't know at what point you have to say I used to play golf and can't still say I still play golf. But if there is a place, I'm sure I'm getting close to it. Uh, there were times I'd meditate on the Lord and his goodness. There's no question. You can do that in a deer stand. You can do that up at the lake. But none of those things replace the local church. So I think there's a truth here. But then I, I think we could go further than that and say this. You know, this was a time when the Holy Spirit of God did not indwell believers in the Old Testament. Uh, the book of Ephesians makes clear that that did not happen until the New Testament, after Christ had died and was buried and rose again the third day. The Bible says He ascended on high and gave gifts unto men. It's talking about the gifts of the Spirit. John chapter number 7 says that the Spirit was not yet come because Christ had not yet risen. That doesn't mean the Spirit of God didn't work in people's lives, but He did not indwell believers perpetually like He does today. So if they wanted to experience God, there was some place they had to go to experience God. They had to go to the tabernacle or the temple and experience God there. So I could say this, that while there's definitely an application to the local church, we could then turn it around and, and make the telescope the microscope and look the other way and say this, that what He is saying is, I want to be in God's presence daily. 
I want to spend time with God. What a beautiful truth that you and I can spend, God, spend time with God. Uh, that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And we need to be daily in God's presence, not just in the sense of being within the walls of, of the local church, although that's a part of it, but living consciously in His presence day in and day out. Uh, you know, I'm reminded, and any time I talk about living in the presence of God, this always comes to my mind. Do you remember what Elijah said when he went into the palace of Ahab? Uh, in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings chapter number 17, he goes into the palace of Ahab. Nobody knows who Elijah is. Uh, you know, he, he, he's Elijah the Tishbite, and that's all we really know about him. But he walks into Ahab's palace, walks into the throne room, and he said, uh, as the Lord God liveth before whom I stand, it shall not rain nor there be any dew for, for you know, uh, three years. But the thing that's interesting to me is this. He's standing in Ahab's palace. But he says, as the Lord God liveth before whom I stand. Now, he recognized the authority of Ahab to a degree. But he recognizes that even in that very moment, though he was standing in Ahab's throne room, he was also standing in God's throne room. Now, that's a good example of what I mean when I say living consciously in the presence of God, to recognize that God is present in our lives day in and day out. So I think one of the things he points to is to enter into his presence. But then notice the second thing. He says, all the days of my life. He wants to endure in God's presence. He doesn't just want to experience God. He wants to experience God perpetually. He doesn't just want to commune with God occasionally, but he wants to day in and day out. He never wants there to be a time in his life when he's not living in the presence of God. Now, I think we all understand, too, that David did not live within the temple. We understand that. Uh, he had a house of cedars and so on and so forth, but he did not live within the temple. But I think what he's saying is this. I never want there to be a time when I get out. Right? I never want there to be a time when I get out. He's not saying I'm going to make a cot or a pallet and sleep there in the temple. He wasn't even as a king and not as a Levitical priest. He wasn't even allowed to do that. He's not saying I never want to leave that. But he's saying I never want to get out. I always want to find myself entering into the presence of God. You know, one of our greatest goals in life should be this, faithfulness. Faithfulness. You don't have to be talented to be faithful. You don't have to have great personality to be faithful. You don't have to even be smart to be faithful, except smart enough to stay faithful, amen? But, I mean, you don't have to have a level of intellect or, or academia. You see, faithfulness is within the grasp of every single one of us. We can all commit to be faithful to the Lord. And so I think the first thing he points to is he says, I want to remain in God's presence. Notice the second thing. He says, to behold the beauty of the Lord. He says, I want to revel in God's presence. I don't just want to get in God's presence. I want to get in God's presence and enjoy being in God's presence. And he points to two things that I think are important. Number one, he says that the presence of God is a thing to behold. Now, we use that term, oh, that's a thing to behold, like, oh, that's very awe-inspiring. And that's true, the presence of God would certainly be that way if, if the curtains of heaven were pulled back and we could view and see every man that ever uh, got into the presence of God always fell on their knees and several of them were, uh, it was like they were struck dead and they thought they were dead. But I, that's not the point I want to make. What I want to make is this, that we can experience God. He says, I want to behold the beauty of the Lord. So this is not something that's abstract and theoretical, nor is this something that is solely dictated by personal experience. You say, well, preacher, how do you know that? Because he's writing a psalm that is meant for public corporate worship. So when he says, I want to behold the beauty of the Lord, he expects that there's going to be some other people in that room that knows what he's saying when he says to behold the beauty of the Lord. 
He's saying this, I can know something about God, and you can know something about God. I don't know that he's speaking of physically, with the, the physical eyeballs, the fleshly eyeballs, viewing God's presence, although there is some precedent for the Shekinah glory of God descending on the mercy seat once a year. But I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is this, that it is possible for me to know God and to experience Him. This is not something that's just relative to... You know how a lot of people, what their Christianity is, right? I know a lot of people, greatest Christians that I know, that their Christianity is whatever they happen to be feeling like doing at that moment, right? Uh, they can justify anything they want to do. I mean, they can justify anything that, any way that they feel about anything. And, and so, you know, instead Christianity becomes defined by their actions instead of their actions being defined by Christianity. So this is not an abstract thing. You can know God in a personal way. Uh, one of the ways we do that, of course, is through the Word of God. If you don't know any, any of the Word of God, then you know very little of God Himself. Now, I'm not going to say you can't be ignorant of the Scriptures and, and know God. I mean, the gospel's the power of God and salvation, right? And there's been lots of people, no doubt, that uh, without ever even reading any portion of the Word of God, someone shared the truth of the gospel and they believed in the simplicity of faith and, and were saved. But I'm saying if you're going to know God on a deep level, in a personal way, then you're going to have to go to the Word of God to learn about Him. It's amazing how many people quote Scripture that they have never read. Instead, they've been told it. They're just parroting things. And I see it all the time. You know, people taking the Word of God and twisting it to their ideals or to support. By the way, you see that in this culture war too, by the way. Uh, it, it's amazing, you know. I mean, there's people, and this is something God showed me this past year, that I really, I, I'll, I'll confess to you that I grew up in a house with one political mindset and one particular, particular viewpoint, and I still subscribe to it. I don't believe I've had to change that. But one of the things God showed me this year is how people that love God can vote in such a, an eclectic way. I mean, there's people that voted a, a certain way that another group would say, you can't even be saved and vote that way, and vice versa. The reality is this, you know, a lot of times people let these cultures define the parameters of their relationship with God. Then they take Scripture to twist to try to support up and prop up whatever cultural inclinations or desires that they have. No, we're not talking about something abstract. We're talking about knowing God for who He is. For who He is. So I think he points that it's a thing to behold. Then I think, number two, he points that it's a thing of beauty. He says, I want to behold the beauty of the Lord. I would suggest this to you. People say that beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. And that is absolutely true in this instance. Not to suggest that God is not beautiful to any person that beholds Him, but to suggest this, that you're not going to find Him beautiful until you do behold Him. The more you get to know God, the more you're going to love God. There's never anything you're going to learn about God that's going to make you love Him less. And if we have trouble loving the Lord, and maybe, I think probably, if we, if we could ever get to the place that we could admit that we're so carnal we have trouble loving God, we'd probably break out in revival. If we could ever get honest enough to admit that there are things in our life that we love more than God, then maybe God could begin to crack through that shell of apathy to begin to deal with us in a meaningful way. But, you know, the fact is, uh, those of us that might have trouble loving the Lord, it's because we've not spent enough time with Him. The more you get to know God, the more you're going to love Him. The more beautiful He will be to you. So I think he points to reveling in God's presence. He's saying, I don't, just want to, I don't just want to go to church. I want to meet with God. I don't want to just be, you've heard me say this before, I don't want to just be at church. I want to be in church. 
and I want God to speak to me. Then finally, let me give you one thing and I'm done. He says this, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and notice the last phrase in the verse, and to inquire at His temple. It's interesting. I think what he's saying is this, I want to remain in God's presence in my life, and I want to revel in God's presence in my life. But I think he's also saying this, I want to receive some things from God's presence that I need in my life. There are some things that I can learn and gain from the presence of God and only from the presence of God. There are some things, I want you to listen carefully, that you'll never learn from a devotional book. There are some things you'll never learn from a theology book. There are some things that you'll only learn by spending time in God's Word with God. I'm not against those things. I'm not against devotionals. I've been praying, Lord, might allow me to even start writing maybe some devotionals to share with some folks. I'm not against that. I'm not against theology books. If you were to look at my office, you'd learn that. I've got, I've got probably over a thousand theology books in my office. I've read at least six of them. Amen? And uh, a bunch of them are from my father-in-law. And he said, just give it back when you finish reading them. And I said, okay. <laughs> All right. Which grandchild do you want me to deed this to one day? Will this to? But, uh, you know, I'm not against those things, but I recognize this, that none of them can supplant or replace our relationship with God. And I think he points to two things. Number one, notice that the presence of God is a place of supplication. He says, there's some things I want to ask God about. It's okay to ask God about things. Not just for things, about things. If there's something going on in your life you don't understand, ask God about it. One of the greatest things that God loves to give people is wisdom. In fact, in so much that God wrote a blank wisdom check in the Bible. Did you know that? He said, if any among you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, which giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. He doesn't say if any spiritual among you lack wisdom, or if any great Christians among you lack wisdom, or if any, any profoundly humble among you. He said, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, which giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. If there's something you don't understand, ask God about it. You may get the answer you're hoping for. You may not get the answer that you're hoping for. Most of the time i found this. When I don't understand something and I ask God about it, most of the time He drives me to Scripture to find the answer. Because God's already spoken in His Word. That's not to say He can't reveal things to us through the Spirit of God, particular to our situation and circumstances. But most of the time, the answer is already in the Word of God. But it is a place of supplication. It's a place we can go and inquire. Part of the problem with a lot of people's relationship with God is it's just too stuffy. Amen? I mean, you know, they're, 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 they're trying to thee and thou God half to death when really all God wants is you to start getting honest and talking to Him. Right? Uh, just talk to Him. You say, Preacher, I wouldn't know what to say. Well, say what you know to say. Talk to Him. Preacher, I wouldn't know what to ask. Well, ask whatever comes to your heart and mind. He's a forgiving God. If you say something dumb, He won't hold it against you. Amen? But whatever you do, just get busy spending time with God. It's a place of supplication. But then I'd say this, it's a place of, of revelation. It's The presence of God is where we learn about God. Now, again, we can learn in His Word. We can learn other people preaching and, and teaching. I hope you've learned some things even in the message tonight. But there's a difference between... Do you remember what, what John said in the book of 1 John? He said, You have no need that any man teach you, for that selfsame anointing shall teach you. Now, let's stop and use a little bit of logic. I know that's not allowed in Baptist churches, but we're going to try it anyway. See what happens. 
Do you think God's saying it's wrong to learn from a teacher? I don't think that's what God's saying. In fact, the Bible tells me this, that God gave teachers to the local church. So evidently, when He says teach, He's meaning something more intense than just the idea of being presented with knowledge. What He's saying is this, that you don't have any... If you want to have a relationship with God, you don't have to have a go-between. You don't have to have somebody go up to heaven and bring you some kind of special revelation. He's saying you in and of yourself. If you want to know God, you can know God. When he says that self-same anointing, he's speaking about the Spirit of God. And he's saying if you're saved by God's grace, then that means you're indwelt by God's Spirit. And if you're indwelt by God's Spirit, that means the author of this book is always present when it's read. And that means that you can go to the Lord, and if there's something you don't understand, you can ask God. You may not get the answer right away, and you may not get the answer that you want, but... If you lack wisdom, ask of God. He giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. He will speak to you. I've heard many a person lament, well, I just don't feel like God speaks to me. And all the while, the Bible stays closed. All the while, the prayer closet stays empty. All the while, their personal walk stays unchanged. Well, listen, if, if you're not willing to hear Him, He's not going to speak to you. And if you're not willing to approach unto Him, both in His Word and through prayer into His presence, then don't expect Him to speak to you. But if you really want to know God, and I think that's the greatest desire we can have, then if we'll come to God and if we'll desire and endeavor to spend time with God, then God will spend time with us. And you say, well, preacher, I don't know if it'd do any good. Well, you just ain't beheld Him yet. (laughs) Once you behold Him, you'll see His beauty. And you may just have to take that on faith. Not faith in what I say, but faith in the Word of God. But you'll find that if you'll exercise faith in that truth, that if I can just get to God and experience the Lord and speak to Him and let Him speak to me, then I'll know Him in a greater way and I'll grow in my spiritual walk. If you'll step out in faith in that endeavor, you'll find He'll never let you down. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed,